Welcome to the Fresh RN Podcast. The information contained in this podcast is meant to supplement your existing knowledge and not replace it. Always refer to your state board of nursing, standards of care, and respective institutions' policies to guide your practice. All identifying patient details have been changed to protect their privacy and remain compliant with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Thanks, nurses. Stay fresh. Hello. Oh, this is great. Do yeah. I know what I'm doing? That's okay. No, you're allowed. You're allowed to not know what you're doing. Huga, huga. It's like Danish for community. Not like Reaching the train. Oh. <laughs> oh, I had peppers just now, and the <laughs> sleeves are long, which is like my love language. They don't need propofol. Nobody better ever do that to me. <laughs> they want me to knock her out. I have a feeling that long sleeves is my love language. It's going to be in the intro. Seven. Oh, yes. What's your record? They bring in a drill from Home Depot. The one thing that I learned about season one, just always be recording. Season two, everybody. Season I'm going to try two. very hard not to say, um. This is wonderful. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, guys. Season two. What was? I'm Katie Kleber. And my name's Elizabeth Mills. And I'm Melissa Stafford. Welcome, Melissa Stafford, to the Fresh RN <laughs> podcast team. What, what? So this episode, guys, we get a lot of requests about neuro stuff because neuro is a little confusing. And we wanted to do two episodes about neuro... It's going to be a little more ICU, neuro ICU-ish, but it's all very, very important information. And I wanted, at the beginning of this episode, I am sitting in the presence of two nurses that have worked in neuro ICU for quite a while. <laughs> they are, like, amazing neuro ICU nurses, and I wanted you guys, we're all just going to explain shortly how our experience level. So I... And I worked in neuro ICU for four years. I worked in a step down for two. And I have my critical care certification. And I've been a nurse. It'll be 15 years in July. So weird. I started out on med surge. I worked on a stroke floor um, and was there for about four years and then transferred to the neuro ICU and then have since gone on to work in the rapid response. And then I did a travel assignment in medical ICU and trauma and stuff. But I'm back in the neuro ICU here, so couldn't stay away. No, I love it. Because we're great. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's well. What's great about it is your assessment is so key. It's not just taking a blood pressure and hooking them up to a monitor, and it's literally your neuro patient. Your their how they're doing relies on how well your assessment skills are. In a sense, yeah, I feel like when people get into neuro, they either love it or they hate it. Or they hate it. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, Either way, you need to know. Anyway. <laughs> so how long? Uh, please explain your experience, Melissa. <laughs> um, I have been a nurse for 16 years. 15 of that has been in the neuro ICU. I worked on a med surge floor um, that was a neurovascular surgery unit. And then I transitioned into critical care, almost kind of like an accident. So I was at a place <laughs> where they were like, hey, do you want to be the charge nurse? And then someone from the ICU had asked me, hey, do you want to work in the neuro ICU? And I was like, mm, yes, please. Yes, I'll do that. <laughs> so I walked behind the two double doors and uh, the neuro ICU. And, and I've loved it, it ever never, since. Never looked back. And never. also, you both are certified. That's true. 
Yeah, I don't have my stroke certification or my neuroscience RN certification. I need to get that. I have the critical care part. But yeah, the... I had the neuroscience one with CNRN was actually the first one that I got many moons ago. And I was a younger nurse, so I didn't keep up with my continuing education the way I should have. So <laughs> uh, I kind of let that one expire, but I do have my uh, SCRN and my CCRN. What, what? <laughs> All right, so let's hop right into it. So one of the main... I feel like when we talk about issues with neuro, a lot of it has to do with increased intracranial pressure and noticing that early and inter and like working with physicians and whatnot about that. But the basis of in increased intracranial pressure is that Monroe Kelly doctrine hypothesis thing that you hear about in school. And then you're like, all right, I don't really like, yeah, I can forget it. now. I forgot about that. But it's actually legit important. <laughs> so, Melissa, will you give us a little quick rundown of why the heck anyone in neuro should care about the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine? Mm -hmm. Monroe-Kelly Doctrine, Monroe-Kelly Hypothesis, either way, it's very important. It's the essential, essential, necessary thing you need to know about neuro. Um, the concept is this. There are three things inside your cranium, inside your skull. You've got the brain. You've got cerebral spinal fluid and you've got blood. And if one of those things increases, then the other two have to decrease to compensate for that or you get increased intracranial pressure. So whether that be brain tissue, you think about brain tumors, for example. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there needs to be a shunting of blood or spinal fluid to make up for that. Or if you have uh, an increase in blood, be it hemorrhage somewhere, um, then you have to accommodate that some way. And then the brain auto-regulates pretty darn well most of the time, but when you have a significant change, you have an increase in one of those three things, and the other two can't compensate for it all the time, so you get increased ICP. And the brain has nowhere to go when it swells except down. It's true. Which is it's not true. good. And not why good. is that not good? Because then you herniate. Your brainstem gets pushed down into your spinal cord and die. Yeah, that's brain it. Death. That is brain death. And yes, um, which it honestly differentiating between brain death and coma and all that kind of stuff is its own episode. So we're not going to dive into that. But I want to talk about the three big things. Okay. Neuro, the airway, blood pressure management, and neuro assessments. Those are the, when we're, we're going to talk about this episode is going to be a little, we're going to talk general neuro stuff, but then we're going to really dive into some specific disease processes. Because for me in neuro, when it really clicked was when I could differentiate between a subarachnoid and, you know, an intraparenchymal hemorrhage and then a subdural. And when I could picture that in my brain, <laughs> what's going on with the patient's brain, then I was like, okay, the management now makes sense. And I'm not memorizing things. No, it actually just makes sense. So the, the key kind of things though is it's not like if they have increased pressure and they herniate or they whatever happens and you can treat it and they can get it back. Like there's no getting brain cells back. When right. they die, they die. So when so time is liter literally time is brain. I know you've probably heard that before, but that is so true. So if you're missing things with your assessment, you're you're not going to get them back, I think. So that's why your assessment skills are really important. Early intervention is key. Yes. So it's the assessment from the nurse who's consistently monitoring the patient because the physician's there for a short period of time. 
and then uh the, you know notifying the physician knowing when to freak out knowing what's an issue what's an expected thing with this disease process versus not and i think one important factor is as a nurse you should kind of know how to do a neuroassessment on any kind of patient that you care for and if there's issues or changes in your neuroassessment you should question it um mm -hmm. i mean there's a number of factors that can contribute but sometimes those subtle little changes can be often missed and once again if if Early intervention is key. If something is really wrong, the faster you recognize it, diagnose it, get it taken care of, the better the patient outcome will be. But um, you should you should kind of know how to do a, a basic neuroassessment. And I know we're not going to go into the assessment, but nurses, it's it, I've found so often that nurses, there's so many things that nurses don't assess when they're nice. checking their patient out, especially from a neuro standpoint even a patient that comes in and you're getting a patient from wherever and they actually have a neuro injury and I'm getting a report and I'm like well what are what are the pupils what are the patient's pupils oh, I don't know <laughs> or anyway, that's all anyway. they know or that's, <laughs> that's all, all they, they know. know yes so but before we go into the because the assessment I have a legit chunk I want to talk about but before we get into that two things um Airway and blood pressure management. Mm -hmm. So, Melissa, can you kind of talk a little bit about why are why is airway so important with neuro patients? Because one of the things, like neuro patients, when they get intubated, it, it doesn't necessarily look like they just stopped breathing. That's very true, and I think that's an important differentiation to have. You know, a lot of people are used to patients getting intubated in response to low oxygen levels. Yes, or um, or a, a poor ABG result. And in the world of neuro, because they're getting intubated, it's a brain problem. It's not a lung problem. Repeat that. It's a brain problem. <laughs> it's not a lung problem. Yes. And that really is very important because the brain is really what controls your breathing. So if you've had a stroke in your brainstem or you've had a stroke anywhere else and you've got enough edema that's causing pressure on the brainstem, their breathing is going to change. And the only way that we can intervene for that really is intubation. Sometimes they try and buy time with a BiPAP or CPAP, but ultimately it's because the brain is not able to regulate the breathing pattern properly. It also becomes more about airway protection. Mm -hmm. So you have two pieces of it. You have the body's ability to breathe properly, and then you have, which is probably more common, the um, way the, that we protect our airway. So patients who have sleep apnea, for example, they have sleep apnea because they're occluding their airway, and that's why they get put on CPAP machines at home. So if they have sleep apnea at baseline and they have a stroke, then, you know, that should be an immediate red flag for you is that, oh, no, they could very well have airway protection issues. It also um, can relate to secretions. Mm -hmm. So we all have saliva in our mouth and we all swallow a million times a day. We don't even think about it. It's just something that we do. The normal well, reflex. A we normal swallow that, reflex. Right Absolutely. <laughs> Let me clear my mouth with my saliva. <laughs> um, Don't take it for granted. That's yes, very true. That's a good point. Don't take it for granted. But these patients who've had a stroke, 
they, they can't do that or they don't do it well. Mm -hmm. And so you'll find these patients either have a gurgly sounding voice or they're constantly clearing their throat um, or worse, they're not doing any of that. And that saliva is just dripping down into their lungs and they'll wind up with an aspiration pneumonia. So it's, it's really more about airway protection in a neuropatient and um, about their ability to breathe properly if we're talking about a brainstem injury at some point. So these patients, unless they're, um, they've had a severe aspiration episode, may very well not have low oxygen saturations. They may very well have a normal AVG, but you're looking at them going, mm, they just don't look right when they're breathing. And that's something that you need to talk about with the doctor because it, yeah. sometimes they really do need to be intubated. And it's subtle. It is. It's it like, is it's not, there's not an alarm going off. Nope. There's not this weird ABG. It's like their O2 is probably 100% or yeah. whatever it is. And Could then be. you're like, man, they're not taking deep breaths or whatever. It's very, very subtle. So mm -hmm. it's it's so important. And you and you want to do this. If, if this is a necessary thing, you don't want to wait until it's an emergency. Yes. Because the, what if the doctor <laughs> has a hard time intubating? Right. I mean, everybody has different anatomy. They're, you know, you always hope that the intubation is going to go smoothly and they get the breathing tube right in and hooray, but it doesn't always go that way. Mm -hmm. So if you're waiting until an emergency, you run the risk of other complications yes. and, or, you know, being too late, honestly, because they're not, they, their oxygen saturation may be okay, but that doesn't mean their brain is actually getting enough oxygen. Right. Oh, that's a tweet. <laughs> their oxygen saturation might be okay but it's not that doesn't necessarily mean that their brain is getting enough oxygen and another thing with the subtle changes it's i think it's really wonderful when our physicians that work with us pay attention to what we're saying because they may come in and see that patient for 10 minutes and that patient's breathing okay right then and there but yeah but when 10 minutes asleep, later they start falling asleep and they're like Snoring. Choking. Snoring. And, yes. yes. Sonorous respirations <laughs> does not mean that the patient is necessarily sleeping well. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they are, but they, they may need to breathe too well. Too. This is yeah. Like, this is not someone who's doing <laughs> sleep. This is coma. Yes. So. And so, so the, the take home with the airway thing is you, there, it's not like they're just going to, well, they will eventually stop breathing. Yes. They but can, they don't necessarily desat. Right. Or their oxygen stats don't drop. First. We can't yeah. rely on the monitor. We must rely on our assessment. When we have a neuro patient with a, that a, a patient has a neurological injury, um, and we're thinking, so we should be always thinking airway, um, mm -hmm. our assessment, and blood pressure management. So, do you want to talk a little bit about why blood pressure management really matter, matters with a neuro patient? Well, blood pressure management just matters in general because it's all about perfusion 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 uh so in some cases with patients who have an inner cerebral hemorrhage a subarachnoid hemorrhage interventricular hemorrhagic strokes for example sometimes need tighter blood pressure control because if you think about the blood vessel or the aneurysm that's ruptured most likely ruptured because that pressure was too high in the vessel so to prevent that from occurring again a lot of times that blood pressure needs to be down and under control not too low because once again if you're not putting enough pressure 
up into the brain, you're not getting perfusion in the brain, but if the pressure's too high, you're going to pop another blood vessel. Mm-hmm. It's a delicate um, balance. It is a delicate balance. I always describe, when I describe it to patients, I say, think of a hose and water pressure shooting through a hose. You know, if you, if the, the pressure, the water pressure is too low, the water's not going to flow through the hose. Blood's not going to flow through your blood vessels. Um, so in cases like ischemic stroke, and this is not always, but sometimes the physician will want to run those pressures a little bit higher because you have swelling of brain tissue, you have dead, you have area around the stroke, the, the penumbra that is, is tissue that we want to try to save. So sometimes we bump up blood pressure a little bit to help perfuse those areas. So, uh, Blood pressure management is a big deal. So when you're caring for a patient with any kind of neurological insult, stroke, especially hemorrhagic or ischemic, um, you should get clarification on what your blood pressure needs to be. And you should have medications on board already to help ordered. support, already ordered to help support those that blood pressure. Right. And, and manage it. I think aggressively or I don't want to say aggressively every case, but if you're getting a report on a neuro patient. You better know those blood pressure limits and not just trusting the nurse before you, mm-hmm. but checking the order and the physician note to ensure that they match up because getting like, cause if you have an ischemic stroke and the physician wanted a blood pressure limit of 180 to 220 and they're kicking it with a 140 and the previous nurse or whomever you're getting a report from is like, yeah, I think it's less than 160. Like that matters. A, oh my God. That's a big deal. It really matters. And I mean, I mean, we've seen it where literally a neuro exam can change with a difference of a blood pressure of 160 and a blood pressure of 120. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because of that collateral circulation, because that extra pressure perfuses additional areas of the brain. So like that are vulnerable, that are vulnerable. Like I've had patients where I'm trying to talk to the neurologist. Okay, what do you want their blood pressure at? Because we're trying to get them out of the ICU and off of the drips. And they're like, you know what? Let their blood pressure go down to 140 and let's see what happens. And then we let it go down to 140. And no bueno, we're not there <laughs> yet. <laughs> you know, so the, oh, that's important. So anyways, well, so those are the big three things. Airway. Blood pressure management, neuroassessment. Although, neuroassessment's probably number one. That's in no particular order. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit again, a little generally about why a consistent, good neuroassessment is essential. And it's not just checking the pupils and having someone squeeze your hands and okay, they they said their name. Check, I'm done. It's a lot more in depth than that, and why i guess why does it matter um and what are some tips that you guys have so the neuro assessment is just the foundation of neuro period because um you have to be able to do a good neuro assessment to make sure that you know your patient well the consistency of a neuro assessment comes in so that you can find those changes early you've already talked about the fact that the earlier you identify a problem the earlier the intervention the better the outcome is for the patient so if you do a good detailed neuroassessment, which is not just people's, not just orientation, it's honestly a neuroassessment is sometimes as simple as walking into the room and does the patient open their eyes when you walk in the room? 
Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's snoozing and a light sleeper and you walk in the room and they open their eyes and look at you, oh, good. They're, you know, they wake up really easily. That's wonderful. It tells you a lot. It does. And then, you know, if that's at eight o'clock in the morning and they're awake and, you know, great. And then you walk in the room later on and they're not opening their eyes right away. Well, are they just sleepy or are we having, you know, having some changes? Do I call their name a little louder and they open their eyes? Do I have to touch them and they open their eyes? Do I really have to kind of get aggressive and maybe do a little sternal pressure? I mean, what does it take for that patient to wake up and attend to you? And you haven't even really done anything but walk in the room at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how they move their arms and their legs is really important. Can they lift them up in the air? Can they hold them up? Mm-hmm. Do they have a drift? How much, how severe is that drift? You know, if, if a patient comes in with a left-sided stroke, you expect to have right-sided deficits. But when I go in and do my first assessment, if I tell them to hold up their right arm and their hand pronates, that's, you know, something for me to note. But if I come in this, in the afternoon and I have them hold up their right arm and then it drifts down almost to the bed, that's a huge change. Well, mm-hmm. Technically, they had a drift earlier, but that drift didn't look anything like it looks now. Mm-hmm. So that's an important neuro change to make note of and to notify a provider on. So um, having that good neuro exam and making sure that you've documented it well, both for your, your benefit, the provider's benefit, and probably more importantly for the nurses that are following you, to be able to picture what that patient was doing exactly in your mind so that you can go back in the room, duplicate your assessment and find any little nuance that's different. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I, when I train people, I tell them when I, you know, when you get report, your goal is to go in there and do an assessment and find something different, (laughs) find something that they're doing better, hopefully, but don't take for granted whatever anybody else told you. You need to walk in the room, do your own assessment and then know if something has changed or not. And you can't, it's more difficult across shifts, which is why it's important to do an assessment with your offgoing nurse. Um, But in your 12 hour, eight hour, four hour shift, it doesn't really matter how long you're there. Being at the bedside and seeing what they're doing neurologically is going to make the difference between you picking up an early change and not. And um, that, like you said earlier, Elizabeth, is you know, that's probably my favorite thing about neuro is the fact that I, I can't just depend on the monitor. It, my ability to take care of patients very much depends on me actually being at the bedside and interacting with my patient. Uh, and, you know, well, it, well I kind of had an interesting situation not too long ago where I had a patient who I had taken care of the previous shift who would easily wake up when I went in the room and this time it took a little bit more for me to wake this particular patient up and also that patient would easily fall back asleep like while I was talking to them Mm -hmm. and so I did I did in fact alert the physician who actually came and did their own assessment and said you know just continue to monitor and the patient continued to get little bit sleepier as the night went on so you know we had a ct scan ordered for like 6 a.m but i was like "Eh, we're gonna go a little bit earlier (laughs) we went nursing (laughs) clinical judgment and of course the ct was worse (laughs) and we did some interventions but it was you know and eventually that patient ended up kind of continuously slowly declining and had to go for surgery but you know um it made it, it did make a difference in 
in what kind of took place and how everything progressed. And it all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden now my patient, I can't wake them up at all. Because sometimes if you can't wake that patient up at all, it, it could be too late. It mm-hmm. could be. Well, and you know, and the important thing too is not once did she say her vital signs changed or. No, they didn't. No, mm-hmm. the, the monitor <laughs> didn't go off. Those, that change was evident only in her assessment. And props to Elizabeth being a night shift nurse too, because it's nighttime. We expect our patients to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And she has to be very mindful of, but how much does it take for me to wake up my patient? Oh, yes. You and, know? And that rolls into the next thing I wanted to talk about was a few, a couple things that will affect the assessment. Yes. So I have a little list of fever, pain, meds, exhaustion, sleep-wake cycle. So those things can, you really have to know your patient because these things can affect the assessment and to what degree are they affecting it where it's not an, uh, something you need to be worried about or it's actually something you need to intervene about. Um, and one of the things, one of those things on that list was sedation. And that is an important thing to, con- which to we keep, don't give, which we don't give <laughs> or yeah. So with neuro patients or, you know, a lot of patients when they're intubated and sedated, they're on, they're sedated, you know, and once a day you do your little wake up sedation holiday, right? But how often are you supposed to wake up and a neuro patient and pause their sedation, guys? <laughs> With every, every assessment. one to two hours. Yes. <laughs> so to get an appropriate neuro assessment, you must pause your sedation. Now, don't let that override whatever order the physician has. But generally speaking, if you have a neuro patient that you need to assess every hour or two hours, you got to pause your propofol. And if it you pause it, it takes 10 minutes for it to the effects to wear off to where you can get an assessment that's something you have to plan around and that's the only way you're going to see detect these neuro changes and honestly and then if you have a patient that is so neurologically injured that they're obtunded they don't need propofol no they don't (laughs) (laughs) or anything or anything and you know the thing is too is to recognize that yes you've given medications for or yes they have a fever of 103 which in a neuro patient is awful um Yes, they came in with a bleed, so they have a headache. They deserve some pain medicine. You know, pain control is important. Um, They need sedation for whatever reason. But the thing is, is that you need to be thinking of when you're doing your assessment, they had a headache an hour ago and I gave them some morphine. And then, you know, you come in, they're a little harder to wake up or their deficits are a little more pronounced. um, And you're like, well, is it a neuro change or is it the pain medicine? And the biggest thing is, guys, it's not your job to decide which it is. It's your job to see that it's happening. Mm-hmm. So then I can go to my doctor and say, my patient is much more difficult to wake up. Their right side of weakness is much worse. But I did give them morphine an hour and a half ago. And then the doctor can say, well, let's give them another hour. Let it wear off. Let's see what happens. Or they can say, well, maybe we do need to go for another CAT scan. It's up to us to identify the change, to communicate with the product excuse me, to communicate with a provider and then they can decide what the next step needs to be. So it's be very mindful of everything that you're doing for your patient, what meds you get, what the timing is, when you're doing your assessment. Because, you know, it's also important to mention that if the patient's tired, they're probably going to have a little bit more deficits Mm -hmm. or their deficits are going to be a little more pronounced. I think of that, especially in patients who have some sort of aphasia, difficulty speaking. If they're tired, they're going to have more difficulty word finding. You know, if you just woke them up at two o'clock in the morning, it's probably going to take them a couple minutes to wake up and be able to speak with you a little better. But you need to watch that and you need to be very mindful of that. And you need to have regular communication with your providers for that reason. 
Um, and that kind of flows into some clinical findings that are big red flags in neuropatients. Can I just say one thing about like pain medicine and sedation? Um, the, one of the frustrating things about a neuropatient is there is no like exact science to what what's too much or mm -hmm. not enough for That's that true. patient. So when you have those kind of range orders for morphine or fentanyl, and usually you should have something that's short acting. Yes. Uh, for that reason, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, start off with the low dose first just to see what, what they do. Because I have, I, I mean, there is no, there. Every, every patient's different. Every patient is different. You know, how I might respond to two milligrams of morphine may be very different to how you respond to two milligrams of morphine. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think what I like to do when I get report is if I hear the patient received pain medication, I ask them, how did they respond? Like, was two milligrams of morphine knocking them out or did it, or were they totally fine? And can I go up, because I've had patients where you gave that patient four milligrams of morphine? What? And then I go in and it's like, oh. I didn't touch them. I don't care. Like, <laughs> they didn't even notice they got four milligrams of morphine. So <laughs> it's important to know, because, you know, there are people that have tolerances, dependences, and those kinds of things. So it's important to be able to know what does that for that patient. Like, one time I had a patient. She wasn't a neuropatient. I floated. But she, I had her max out on propofol and she was like talking Wide to awake. me around her breathing tube yeah. <laughs> i was like i don't know what to do with this i don't know they want me to knock her out and i cannot <laughs> but anyways so so clinical findings though for neuro patients are different like it's not like an a spike in blood pressure is important but like one of the biggest things to notice is a decreasing level of consciousness so it's not necessarily like oh, all of a sudden they have they can't move their right arm it's like I went in before and they woke up when I, sorry, just punched you guys. Um, they, I went in before and they woke up easily. And now when I'm talking to them, they're falling asleep. And it's not like they're falling asleep, tired, and they're still half awake. No, no, they're like falling asleep and they need to be woken up. Like, it's interesting when you have those patients that like, it's like they pass out. <laughs> like right in front of My you. My name is Melissa. <laughs> and then and then you have to sternal rub them up and it's like yeah. this is crazy so it's important to and notice we don't, those. we don't sternal oh rub i'm sorry oh excuse me excuse me we used to sternal yes. pressure sternal pressure this is true sternal pressure i should have talked about <laughs> or acceptable forms their of pain, shoulder trap pinch orbital pinch. or the orbital Super pressure, orbital pressure. Supra, Which, orbital. nobody better ever do that to me <laughs> <laughs> I will punch you out. I will. I will come out of my Don't stroke and touch my coma eyes and sucker punch you. You have to assess my corneals. Do it with some lidocaine or something. Lidocaine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, neuro joke. Um, so, <laughs> so, so the decreasing level of consciousness is really important to notice. Um, that's going to be your first sign of changing intracranial pressure. And it can be agitation too, guys. Oh, so yeah. you have a patient who comes in and they're, they may be confused and, but they're cute. You know, those cute little people. Oh, yeah. They come in. They think it's 1992. Yes. They are not cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> Just wait was, till night shift. That's true. That's true. She is a night this shift. This is true. Nurse. They're cute on days. They're kind of different on nights. But yeah. anyway, um, so you have a patient who is pleasant. Um, on day shift and uh, now all of a sudden they're getting very very restless and they're 
could go to the extreme of being very agitated. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is important. This isn't necessarily them um, just being grumpy or um, just being cranky. It's tired. It's ten o'clock at night. You know, this could very well be a neuro change if mm-hmm. they're if they're now restless and fidgety or screaming profanities at you and they haven't cussed a day in their life or you know Which those I've kind of things. Before I've had mm-hmm. patients. I've had pastors that never curse a day in their life and they are swearing up a storm and the family is like standing in the corner going who's oh this God, who is this and then the next day the patient's like no i don't idea. even know i don't remember yesterday mm-hmm. yeah so anyway so decreasing level of consciousness and one of the things too that's important because it's like patients will change they will fluctuate mm-hmm. what's important to notice is is this a repeatable consistent like um, assessment finding. So did they, when you had them squeeze your hands, was one, did one time when they grip your hand, it was like weak or was, is this consistent? Like, can you get them to grip and release? Can, yes. Yes. <laughs> the I don't, reflexive grip. Yes. People. Okay. You know how you put your hands in like your finger in a baby's hand and they just grip and they don't let go. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But then if I have a neuro adult patient who has a neurological injury and a family member puts their fingers in their hand and they grip it for and they don't release the like grip of death. the grip of death, they think that that's a good sign. And mm-hmm. it's not. It's reflexive. And you feel like the angel of death when you consistently tell the family like, no, it's, that's just, refle- it's just reflexive. We don't. I'm not excited about that. Um So it's also so it's important. Is is this change that you're noticing? Is it repeatable? Um, is it consistent? And also, is this a sudden drastic change? So those are things to keep in mind. So now that we've talked about some general neuroness, let's talk about a couple of disease processes that are really important to differentiate. Okay. So the the big one is stroke. So we're going to go into ischemic stroke versus hemorrhagic stroke, a couple different um, kinds of hemorrhagic strokes, Um, and then a little bit about seizures. Uh, a little bit about tumors, and then a little bit also about subdural and epidural hematomas, which are not strokes, <laughs> people. So so we're going to try and hit through these kind of quick, ch- tell you what it is, important things for uh, uh, management, nursing management. So if you want more in-depth stuff about these, look at us. Because <laughs> we're not going to give you everything you need to know, but we want you to be able to differentiate this. Because once you be, are able to differentiate it, it helps you kind of know how to plan your care. Right. Plan your care. Prioritize. So let's talk ischemic stroke. Tell me about that. So when a patient comes into the emergency room and is having a symptom of a stroke, they're going to do a CAT scan. And the purpose of that CAT scan is to look for blood or not, honestly. A blood you're going to see on a CAT scan right away. If they're having an ischemic stroke, you may or may not see some subtle changes, but you're not going to see blood. So that's kind of the first step is, is there blood or is there not? So we're going to go down the path of there's no blood. So now it's going to be up to the physicians to decide, is this patient going to be eligible for TPA or some sort of intervention? Because um, when they do that CAT scan and you get report and they say, oh, the CT is negative, but they got TPA. You're not in neuro. You may think, well, they get TPA. Their, mm-hmm. their CT was negative. But really what they're saying is there was not blood in the scan. Um, so you have this patient that comes. And they did a CT, it doesn't have blood, they've decided to give TPA. And it's really important to understand that, number one, neuroassessments are key. Um, you're going to be doing neuroassessments for every 15 minutes for a couple of hours. Yes, God, every so 15 minutes. And they go to an ICU. They do go to an ICU, <laughs> that's for, an for that ICU. reason. Um, or they go to a stroke, primary stroke center, yes. they're an outside facility. That's true. 
Um, so a lot of neuro assessments and um, every 15 minutes, then every 30 minutes, then every hour. And that's really set up by the American Stroke Association guidelines. Um, but, you know, the they, they can also not just have TPA, but have a thrombectomy, which is a removal of a clot from a large blood vessel or a combination thereof. Which we'll go into depth with our next episode, which I'm pretty excited about. We're going to talk about meds and procedures and stuff right, in our next right. episode, guys. So if they get TPA, then we need to worry about... Are they still going to have some worsening stroke symptoms? Um, and if their assessment gets worse, one of the things that needs to be on your mind is, do they have a hemorrhagic conversion? Which is particular of particular concern if they had TPA. It's also of particular concern if they had a large vessel occlusion because typically they have a larger area of brain tissue that's been impacted and is now weak. So um, they're at higher risk for having a hemorrhagic conversion. And if they do, you're, you're, you know, you're doing your neuroassessments, you, you find that they're changing, you're going to go for another CAT scan, they're going to look for blood, and if there is, then, you know, there could be a whole slew of things that you need to do to reverse that TPA, if they got it, if it's early enough. Um, and then your, your nursing care changes a little bit. So that's kind of the immediate period, is if you're going to have a hemorrhagic conversion, probably within that first 12 to 24 hours, you can later on. I don't want to limit that. You absolutely can later on, but that's kind of the first consideration when they come in. The second thing that we worry about is edema, and cerebral edema can cause just as much injury as another stroke can. Mm -hmm. So um, anytime you have a stroke, you are going to have swelling associated with that stroke, and it matters kind of what area of the brain had the stroke. It matters how large that stroke is. Um, and kind of your age, too, because as you get older, your brain atrophies. That is really true. Mm -hmm. Your um, brain gets smaller. It shrinks. <laughs> um, and it, the same is true for alcoholics, actually. They yes. also develop atrophy. Um, but that usually doesn't happen until later on, unless you're really young. I mean, it can happen at any point, but typically your peak swelling occurs three days after your stroke. So if you come in, you have a stroke, and the patient does really well 24 hours, 24 hours after TPA, and they go out to a med surge floor and they're thinking, oh, everything's all fine and dandy. That's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. You know, if your patient's getting sleepier or having more changes, it could very well be related to cerebral edema. And then we may need to do something to intervene on that behalf. And something she did say that I kind of want to reiterate is where the stroke happened really, really matters. It like, does. Not all areas of the brain are created equal. And a neurologist explained this to me once. Like, if you think about your brain like real estate and you think about your brain stem as Manhattan and, like, the top is kind of like uh, Montana. Montana in the middle of no, I don't say that. It's just Montana. Like, there's a lot of space. Wide open spaces. Wide open spaces. So if you have a bomb that goes off in Montana, it doesn't necessarily cause as much damage if you had it in Manhattan and hurt as many important things so a smaller bomb in Manhattan would do significantly more damage than even a larger one in Montana mm -hmm. so that's something to keep in mind so if you find out they had an ischemic, a small ischemic stroke in the posterior circulation or in the um, in the brainstem that's a big deal mm -hmm. versus a small stroke you know in the top like so keep that yeah. in mind right it's Small important yeah <laughs> yeah 
a, stro- a, a very tiny stroke in the brainstem can be catastrophic. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And then um, much kind of we've already talked about is blood pressure management. It's going to be very important for an ischemic stroke patient. So oftentimes you, you may see the term permissive hypertension. So if you have a patient who comes in with a history of high blood pressure, we very well may let their blood pressure run high because in this particular situation, that's okay. We need to maintain that perfusion like Elizabeth was describing. We need to maintain um, good blood flow to the area of the brain around the stroke. Um, and then also you may end up having that lower blood pressure limit as well. So um, like Elizabeth said already, if they already have uh, a, a consistent neuro exam at... at um, a blood pressure of 150. Yes. And then they get sleepy at night and now their blood pressure is 120 and they have more changes. Then we may need to artificially raise their blood pressure. Um, and And... You know, there's not strong evidence related to that practice, but I can say that I have absolutely seen it it. in many patients where Mm -hmm. they have neuro changes at a blood pressure of 120 that they don't have at a blood pressure of 140. Mm -hmm. So So that's some important stuff um, to keep in mind when you're taking care of a patient with an ischemic stroke. So let's say, though, they came in and they got their CT scan and they did find blood where it was not supposed to be. They had a hemorrhagic stroke. So there are different kinds of hemorrhagic strokes. And again, it really matters where they are and what's going on. So Elizabeth, can you kind of go into things that are important with a general hemorrhagic stroke? And then let's differentiate between an intraventricular and subarachnoid and all that fun stuff. One thing is blood pressure control because like, I talked about earlier, typically that blood vessel aneurysm, whatever, has ruptured usually due to the blood vessel was weak because it's withstood high blood pressure for a long period of time. Not always, but most consistent, most of the time, yes. So normally you want to keep the blood pressure on the lower side. And I think now the standard for hemorrhagic strokes is a systolic blood pressure less than 140. That is the guidelines from the... Oh, did that change? It used to be 160. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more challenging now, too. Like, oh, I bet. <laughs> you got that cardine maxed out, I bet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Many times. Um, okay. So another thing with hemorrhagic stroke, it's important to know if your patient's on blood thinners. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just tell you, if you're getting a patient from the emergency room with a hemorrhagic stro- stroke, stroke, sound like I'm having a stroke, they need some <laughs> coag studies done because yes. they may need some kind of reversal for whatever they're on. If they're on Coumadin, they may need some... FFP, fresh frozen plasma, vitamin K, et cetera. So that's a, a big thing. Your assessments are not going to change per se. You're still going to do your neuroassessments the same way. But um, with a hemorrhagic stroke, blood pressure control, reversal of whatever blood thinner they could potentially be on. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also high risk for seizures. So hopefully they'll be on some kind of anti-epileptic. Um, and then... The, the wonderful thing about a hemorrhagic stroke is our brain actually does kind of heal it, heal itself in that it, 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 it absorbs that blood on its own. So the hemorrhage can go away. It doesn't mean there's not going to still be damage there, but um, the blood will get slowly reabsorbed. It takes several weeks. Which is an important thing to educate families on because yes. I think a lot of people, when they see movie and TV, they think someone's just going to wake up all of a sudden when they're in a coma and they've had this big stroke. And it's like, this takes 
weeks to months for this blood to reabsorb. Like they're going to be long out of the ICU before we see and know prognosis long term. Like day two, we haven't even had swelling set in. Like I don't, it's way too early to predict those kinds of things, but the family will be chomping at the bit to know. And unfortunately, it's not like we're holding information back. We legit can't have no clue. So it's important to make sure you consistently educate and make sure that they understand that, yeah, there's blood in their brain where it's not supposed to be. And it takes time to reabsorb. And it's not something we just go in and take out. It has There has to be a substantial amount of blood to justify that very risky surgery. Yeah, and that's a big thing with surgery, too, is, number one, not all patient who has a hemorrhagic stroke is going to be eligible for surgery. Because mm-hmm. it's always about risk versus benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on where that hemorrhage is may determine whether or not they are um, a candidate for surgery. The other thing is it's very important to under for the family to understand that even if they do surgery, it does not reverse the damage that's already been done. Mm, the goal yep. is to prevent secondary injury. So it surgery is often a life-saving um, tactic. Not fixing. It doesn't fix, <laughs> right? It, do, it, it may save their life, but it doesn't do anything to reverse the damage that's already been done by that stroke. Okay, so there. So this is we're we're speaking like a general hemorrhagic stroke. So they can have a hemorrhage in various areas of their brain. They can have it in the uh, parenchyma, which is just the brain tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then they can also have it in the subarachnoid space, and they can have it in the intraventricular space. And am I missing any spaces? No, I think it's good to clarify one thing about a lot of times I hear, well, oh, they had a hemorrhagic stroke. Well, did they have an aneurysm? An aneurysm is doesn't always cause, oh, how do I say this? A hemorrhagic stroke is not always the result of an aneurysm rupture. An aneurysm is actually like a bulging out of the blood vessels. People, I think a lot of times don't understand that. Yeah. It's like a bulging out of a blood vessel. So it's like... um. I don't know. I don't have, it's a it's a blood a vessel abnormality. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is that you know a hypertensive bleed is not the same as an aneurysm rupture or an AVM, right. right? This is not always related to a structural problem that needs to be yeah, fixed. That's a good point. Hmm. Very good. Well, I get so nerd out when we talk neuro. Okay, <laughs> so let's so uh, so a subarachnoid, and I feel like a patient that has a subarachnoid hemorrhage is one of the most challenging. Oh, they're my favorite. But yeah, like you enjoy them, but at the same time, it's like this, it, it's a long-term thing. Yes. It's lots of potential complications. So Melissa, can you kind of explain subarachnoid hemorrhage first, and then maybe some, talk about vasospasms and some of the things that we're concerned about? Right. So subarachnoid hemorrhage occurs when there's blood mixed in with spinal fluid, basically. There's blood in the subarachnoid space, which is in between the layers of the meninges of the brain. Um the most common cause is actually trauma, like a fall. But behind that, then we start talking about aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is um, what we're looking for when somebody comes in with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Why did they have that? And they often either do a CTA or an angiogram where they're looking for a blood vessel problem. Um, was there an aneurysm somewhere? Or heaven forbid, is there more than one? No, I've, um, had, I've had a patient have three. Uh, seven. Oh, yes. What's your record? <laughs> um. Maybe three, but I I think I did take care of the patient, a patient who had the largest aneurysm I have. Oh, yeah. The giant one, ones are scary. It was like the size that, of a golf the, ball. That the aneurysm itself looks like a hospital like a, to have surgery. Yes, oh my God. yes, yes. Yeah. 
So um, when they come in, they have the subarachnoid hemorrhage, number one. Why do they have it? So they identify an aneurysm, then they have to fix it. So the first thing is to fix it. Um, then you, so whether they fix it with a, uh, an endovascular treatment or they fix it going, doing an open craniotomy, they'll fix it. So that's the first 24 hours is why do they have it? Let's fix the cause. Um, and then, then, then the fun sets in much to Katie's point. Yeah. Um, we worry, we do worry about edema. Um, but really what we're looking at is, um, problems with vasospasm. So that happens as a result of the blood being in the spinal fluid. So that blood kind of acts as a chemical irritant to the blood vessels. And those blood vessels can clamp down and restrict blood flow. So let me, so to kind of paint that picture is you have the, the blood. So blood is really, really where it's not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You have blood in this subarachnoid space. And then it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it is also on the outside of those major blood vessels mm -hmm. in the circle of Willis. True. That and, and that irritation on the outside causes them to clamp down. That is true. Okay. That is true. Okay. So if they clamp down, then then we're talking about a risk for ischemic stroke. And so Y'all, that's serious. <laughs> yeah. It is really, really serious. So kind of Elizabeth alluded or actually spoke a little bit about the water hose, and I kind of think of it that way as well. So if you have a water hose and the opening and you turn the water on, it flows out. But if you put your thumb over the opening of that water hose and make that opening smaller, the blood flows faster. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but it's not getting the same amount of water that's coming out. So we have to make those blood vessels open back up. Um, some way, somehow, and if we don't, and then they have an ischemic stroke. So it goes back to assessment again. What did their assessment look like when they had the original rupture, and is it changing? Because mm -hmm. um, we may need to intervene with high blood pressure or um, some, another kind of endovascular treatment or fluids, things like that. It all goes back to the Monroe-Kelly hypothesis. This is true, y'all. <laughs> Bringing it back full circle. So so a subarachnoid patient is pretty intense. Like they can have yes. the original injury, then they can suffer from edema, then they can suffer from vasospasms, and they could even have a subsequent Another ischemic stroke. stroke on top of that, which I have seen before, oh, absolutely. even in my short career. If you if you come in with a, an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, you just bought at least a two-week stay in the ICU. Yeah, yes. I think yes. is it. 40% of aneurysm ruptures don't even make it to the hospital alive. And then it's another like 60% that will, that, that get, that have some kind of long-term deficit. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a crazy number. It is. Yeah. Like what, like having one, the, the likelihood of getting to the hospital in the first place is pretty low. And then low. you being able to get out of the hospital without any deficits at all is very low. Yeah. Like I had a patient once that she didn't know she was having an aneurysm. She had a headache. Took, and she took a Tylenol or something and wanted to go to bed. And her friend was like, "Something's wrong. Something is wrong." And her friend made her go to the emergency department, and she had um, had an aneurysm rupture. And if that chick Save had life. gone to bed, old girl would have not woken up. Mm -hmm. So those kind of like, oh. So anyway, so that's the subarachnoid. Then there's also the intraventricular. And it's going to be the last one we talk about in this episode. So I don't know. When I started neuro, I kind of forgot that there are ventricles in the brain. And in your ventricles in the brain, that is where you create and reabsorb spinal fluid. 
And sometimes you can get a hemorrhage in that space. So can you guys kind of talk about what 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 does that mean for a patient? The so the blood ends up leaking or going into the the ventricles which holds the spinal fluid and what happens is that blood can sit there and start to clot and then what happens is the spinal fluid can't drain its normal way and go down into the spinal cord and and circulate around because sometimes I like to think of the blood as acting like a stopper in a sink Mm. and so what happens is is in your ventricles you are constantly producing spinal fluid reabsorbing spinal fluid but if for some reason that spinal fluid can't flow normally that spinal fluid builds up. Remember Kelly hypothesis, you have a buildup of spinal fluid, you're gonna get, the, the tissue in the brain's gonna get compromised. Um, so you have hydrocephalus. Um, so mean, meaning the ventricles are getting bigger? Getting bigger, you have a buildup of, yeah, of, of the spinal fluid, which um, a lot of times in an intraventricular hemorrhage, if it's bad enough, they'll get what we call an external ventriculostomy drain which are so freaking cool to see them inserted i remember one of my first (laughs) shifts where i literally saw a neurosurgeon drill into somebody's brain and they're sort of awake and they are yeah yeah. yeah. and i had no idea in my (laughs) life that i would ever be looking at that they they bring in a drill from home depot (laughs) and they literally (laughs) Actually, the funny thing is, is it's actually not a power drill. It is not a power drill. drill. Yeah, it's a hand drill. And in the neuro ICU, it's like, okay, whenever you use it on somebody, you get to take the first one. Like you get to take one home. That's like your passage, yes. That's your right of passage. Clean it off, take it home. I have a drill at home. Um, So that, yeah, so that, so they put in, they drill into, into the skull and then drop this catheter into the uh, ventricular space to relieve pressure. And I've seen it where they put the catheter in and it, the, Spinal fluid shoots out because the the pressure pressure is so intense. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's very essential to do. It is. And, and, you know, it's important to understand they're not doing that to drain the blood. They're doing that to to relieve the pressure. Right. And then sometimes it's so severe. I just want to throw in a mention, too, that they are now actually doing intraventricular TPA as well. Hmm. Because like Elizabeth said, you know, if there's enough blood in the ventricle, it can clot and the drain won't work. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, usually about 48 hours or so after that if need be, and the surgeon determines that it's safe to do so, then we actually can give intraventricular TPA. Yeah, because you continue to produce that cerebral spinal. There's no turning that off. So it's like, even though there's this massive injury, we have to compensate, like, you know, because the body's going to keep producing this spinal fluid. So, yeah, did you guys, anything else you guys wanted to add about those last three? a lot of talking points there. Oh, man, yeah. So we can, we could probably speak for hours. Yep. And we will. You're a nerd. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Check out freshrn.com slash podcast for some show notes um, and subscribe and download some of our episodes. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to dive more into neurotopics with our next episode. Thanks, guys. Stay fresh. Damn crowd better hit the floor All the other fellas better run for the door Stop, drop, and roll with me I got the heat that'll make you scream I don't believe in playing it safe I got the urge to misbehave I've been known